Hi, I'm Marcus. I've been working in the area of ageing and longevity for over 25 years, both here in Australia and right across the world. And I want us to develop new thinking on getting older. Booming the podcast is about unlocking the mysteries of getting older in today's society. It's about understanding the opportunity we have to embrace our new longevity and overcome the challenges that we'll encounter along the way. Your brain is only 2% of your body weight, but uses nearly a quarter of the energy using point in time. A different conversation today where we hear from an expert to advise us on the importance of diet and nutrition and the role that plays across our overall health and lifestyle. Plants are great, veggies are great, because most people who are now in their 80s or, or later age have actually grown up eating real food. Nairi Hobbins is an international authority on nutrition, ageing, brain health and dementia, having written books and presented to numerous audiences on such topics. There are billions and billions of bacteria that live in our digestive systems, in our guts. And as people get older, there are changes in physiology that can affect how well you absorb nutrients. As a practicing dietitian, Nairi provides for us the link between what we eat and all our health and lifestyle aspects. Nairi Hobbins, welcome to Booming. Wow, I've been a dietitian for 40 years, I think now. Um, I think I just sort of fell into that profession. I was always interested in the area of nutrition and food, and I've done lots and lots of different things. Um, I've worked in hospitals and in clinical settings and all sorts of different areas. But about a bit more than 20 years ago, I did a stint in community care, actually, um, as actually a carer, not as not as a dietitian um, when I was sort of, you know, young children, whatever. And that got me into the this area, the sort of older people's nutrition. Was there a particular moment where you realised that there was this absolute need to really share more widely knowledge about nutrition, about the importance of it for people across all ages, across all areas of society? Yeah, that was, I mean, I'd been a dietitian already, but my time as a community care support worker was actually when I had young children and it was just easier to do a job that... Um, was worthwhile and useful, but I became aware during that time more and more that I could see people who were making um, eating choices that actually weren't helpful for them, um, that thought that it was okay to do things like lose weight or whatever. But in my role as a community care support worker, I wasn't actually allowed to do anything about it as far as nutrition goes. And so I got very frustrated with that and I ended up going back into a dietitian role and I was immensely fortunate to work um, with a team under a, um, a Professor Peter Lipsky. The team used to often see people, and interestingly, Peter would sometimes say, we'd sort of have this joke, he'd say, if we'd seen this guy five years ago and you had been able to talk to him about what he should be eating, we wouldn't have to deal with the situation we've got in front of us now. But I would see their family and friends, often the wife, husband, other family, carers, whatever, standing around. And I think, wow, if I don't talk to you, you're going to be here soon. And so we tried to find information that we could hand out to those people so that we could have an impact. And there was absolutely nothing, nothing at all written specifically for older people. So we wrote a few pamphlets and brochures um, to do that, to actually get that information out because it's so important. But there was no awareness and that was the motivation, seeing people we knew we could do something about and the system not being there to support them. So broadly speaking, what's your, your focus at the moment? 
Um, from that time, I have to say that this is the focus has always been on, right, I know that older people, they're different physiologically to younger people, and that's not an ageist thing. That is physiology. That's the way it is. I often say we're designed to grow from a baby into a big adult structure. That's the design, obviously. But once you become that full-size adult structure, there's, the design is not to grow any bigger or you'd be a giant by the time you're 60. You know, that doesn't happen. And actually all the building that you do until you become that full-size adult would get you through to about 70 without too much consequence apart from medical issues. And not long ago, 70 was really old. That's not very long ago that that was life expectancy. Now, of course, that time from 70 on. So if you only had to get to 70, you wouldn't have to think too much about a different thinking of nutrition. But now, of course, 70 is the beginning of time of, you know, 20, 30, 40 years of sure. time. And, and we want that to be good time. And that's what you're talking about. That's what we're all talking about. So my aim is, is getting the message to people so that the years beyond mid-60s, 70s on, are actually better quality, more independent, and, and you know, having living the, the life you want to live as long as possible, not this slow dwindle, because far too often I still see that slow dwindle. And, of course, there's other aspects to that than just nutrition, but actually nutrition is pivotal and most people don't understand the distinction. Nairi, speaking with you previously, you've educated me and others on the changing nutritional requirements at different phases of our lives. Mm. Can you share some of the key requirements and how they change at different stages of our, of our ageing journey? Basically, it pivots around what your muscles do. Now, your muscles are much more than what you need to walk around, to get out of your chair, to do all those things. They're much more than that. They're also your body's reserve of the nutrient called protein. We need protein 24 hours a day to do heaps of things in the body that are not just moving about. We need the protein 24 hours a day to run our immune system. Even if you don't know you're unwell, um, you can be fighting off various issues in the background that you're not aware of, and you need to make immune proteins. Now, because we're not eating 24 hours a day, sometimes there's going to be times when protein's needed, but that food isn't right there. So your muscles give up little bits of protein to supply the other, that other function. And in a young person who have all those drivers to build the body, the 30-year-old, for example, that doesn't matter if you lose a bit of protein out of your muscle because it'll come back because you're being told to grow and build muscle and the like. But the 70-year-old is not being told to grow any bigger. So if you've lost that muscle, the problem is that it might might not come back. Now, that's the big issue. Now, not only do you need protein for your immune system, you also need it to repair any tiny scratch, graze, bruise, or huge things like surgery. Anything that you're doing repair work, that's protein. And if you're not eating 24-7, then sometimes you're using muscle reserve to keep that going. You're also always making new cells. You're always making new heart, kidney, lung, skin, hair, whatever. You know, you're always making new cells in your body just to keep it going. Protein again. And the other thing that is often forgotten about is your brain. Your brain is only 2% of your body weight, but uses nearly a quarter of the energy used at any point in time. And sometimes 
there's an issue where the brain is not getting all the fuel it needs and it needs to draw fuel from the body. It does have a little reserve of its premium fuel, which is a carbohydrate, glycogen, but it doesn't last very long. So sometimes you need extra to keep your brain firing as it should. Now, protein is converted into the, glu the glucose the brain needs to keep the brain going when that reserve, is, when your other reserve is low. And that's another thing. So all those things the proteins are being used for, that's normal. And every time you use them up, a little bit goes out of your muscles. The problem might happen is if you allow that to diminish because you're older and you've lost little bits of muscle, if it doesn't come back, one day you're not going to be able to keep your immune system going. You may not be able to repair the wounds. You may not be able to keep your organs going. It might even affect your brain full. That is where we start the dwindling thing that happens. With that concept of dwindling, as you say, what might I notice or what could I be looking at for and recognise, say, as a as someone in their mid-40s versus someone who might be in their mid-70s? What are some of the, the signs that I should be alert to? And are they different at different phases of my life? Yeah, well, actually, the easiest one to recognise is around body weight. So if a 30, 40-year-old loses weight, that's just standing on the scales one day and then, you know, a week, two weeks, whatever, has, is lower in body weight, that person has proportionally lost a reasonable amount of body fat and maybe some body muscle. But even if they've lost some body muscle, they will make it up again. A 70-year-old losing exactly the same amount of weight will proportionally have lost much more muscle and often very little amount of fat. And that is because of that change in physiology. It's because of the stopping the building, building, building thing. There's nothing really you can do about that change. We just have to be aware that weight loss in later age is a different thing altogether. Now, we all are so embedded in the everyone must be lean and all that sort of stuff. Of course, it would be great if you could do with 10 kilos less and you're 70 in your 70s, say, It'd be good if it was gone, but the problem is getting there can actually have negative consequences. Are there things we could be alert to in terms of how we are feeling? So whether it's, is it tiredness or ability to concentrate or are there other sort of physical factors that we might feel but may not see that we should be, should be alert to? Maybe. Um, I would say that I often, when I, when I talk to people and, um, and when they, you know, take away the book or the information that I get from, you know, giving people talks, um, often they'll come to me afterwards and they say, oh, you know, it's amazing, I feel much better and because I'm doing some physical activity and I'm, you know, making sure I get the protein I need and I'm getting colours and whatever. So it's, it's hard to actually put those two together exactly, but basically if you are supporting your body to do what it's meant to do, it's an overall benefit. People tend to feel better. Like if you build your muscle, you're going to stand more upright and therefore your breathing gets better and therefore, you know, and, and a whole lot of things, your balance is better, you're less likely to fall over. So a whole lot of things in life actually start to play into becoming better. As far as looking at things, you know, people might go, oh, I'm feeling tired. There can be other reasons for that. Um, one of the things is that, you know, so many medications have side effects that, I'm not saying people should stop taking the medications they've been prescribed, but I think one thing I say to people all the time is keep on asking, do I need all of them? Sometimes as you get older, some can, you can reduce. Sometimes some will interact with each other. 
affects your appetite, it affects your um, digestive system, it affects your you know, balance, all sorts of things. And if you can try and, you know, it's just tips to what to look at, which ones to look at, which ones to say, do I still need this? Those things all make a difference and it all ties in. I know it doesn't sound like it's food, but it all ties into food. No, it makes perfect sense. I think that's a, a mm. great piece of advice around asking the question about your medication. As you say, there's mm. potential to impact on your appetite and, and a range of other both physiological and psychological factors. Brain and body is a strong focus of your work and indeed your latest book is Brain, Body, Food. One of your quotes is, brain likes real food. Yes. What do you mean by that? You know, the great thing about when I'm talking to audiences, they're often audiences of people who are now in their later years. And the wonderful thing is they say, you know, you know it all. Everything you've done up till now in your life as far as, you know, eating food is actually the answer. Um, because most people who are now in their 80s or, or later age have actually grown up eating real food, fresh, seasonal, local food. They often grew it. They were physically active, which is great, in their youth. And the answer, you know, one of the really important things about the brain and, you know, dementia risk reduction, and there's all sorts of diets and there's all sorts of plans, but if you bring all of those down together and distill it, every single one of them is saying eat a variety of foods, eat foods as close as possible to the way they started out, so fewer processed foods, more foods that have undergone less processing, and you know, have as many different, as much different varieties you can. That's basically what they're all talking about. And most of them then, of course, go into being active and socially engaged, which are the other important things. So really, that's the answer. It is eating foods that have undergone as few changes from when they came out of the water or off the tree or out of the ground or off the paddock next door, whatever it happens to be, wherever it comes from. It doesn't mean that having... I don't know, some gorgeous looking thing that you buy one day that's a treat is going to damage you. It just means that you balance that as much as possible with fresh things. There's a recent study in the in Europe that, that's demonstrating that ultra-processed foods, these are things that basically bear little or no resemblance to where they started from, um, are actually associated with frailty. You know, So you wouldn't necessarily take that automatic connection but it's a strong association so they these ultra processed things seem to affect something in the brain called chronic inflammation and the chronic inflammation is one of the drivers of cognitive issues that might lead, that lead to dementia that's the belief at the moment and so anything we can do to reduce chronic inflammation is perfect and that is those sort of foods and also staying physically active again <laughs> just staying with that with that notion around the ultra-processed foods, what are some common examples that most of us would see and potentially reach for? Um, one that is slightly worrying at the moment is this um, plant-based diet thing, which is fine. Plants are great. Veggies are great. Um, nuts, seeds, legumes, pulses in their you know most normal, usual, unprocessed form are fantastic. But people are fearful of eating animal-based foods or don't want to for whatever reason, that's fine. But taking up eating processed alternatives that may well be, have good ingredients that aren't a problem, but a lot of them actually increasingly are 
catering to a taste or making pretend meats of various versions. It were never, soybeans were never meat, you know, so <laughs> making them into something that looks like that might introduce changes in the structure of their molecules that might be a driver. We don't know yet, and we probably won't know for 20 years, but it seems to me that a lot of those foods you have to be careful of. There's a lot of protein bars. Protein is immensely important um, as, as you get older, but protein that's undergone as few changes as possible. And the other things are the more obvious things like, you know, snack foods, um, you know, burger rings, cheesels, those sort of types of things that people eat. Now, most people aren't eating them that often, so it's not a problem. By the way, I love both burger rings and cheesels, so I'll, <laughs> I'll take that advice on notice. That's um, all right, as long as you have your, you know, lots of fruits and veggies alongside them, you're right. Indeed, indeed. <laughs> <laughs> Nairi, other misconceptions, we've touched a little bit around the common propensity to engage with different diets that are promoted and indeed different foods as well. Mm. What are some of the key misconceptions we should be aware of? The main thing is that there's a lot of diets, those diets are actually focused on longevity and not that that is a problem in itself, but any longevity plan, so a plan to have you living longer years, has to really start quite early. So um, in order to have a good effect. Um, so if you start a plan, say, you know, eating um, only in short time frames, so not eating as often during the day and things like this that are around at the moment, that's a good plan so long as you're getting enough nutrients in the rest of the day. And if you start at 30, 40, maybe it will have an impact. I won't know because I possibly won't be around at the time those people get to, you know, 90 or 100 or 120. But that's the key. So that if you're now 80, taking it up now or even in your 70s may not be helpful, as helpful as for a younger person. And the consequence might be that you restrict the number of nutrients you take in. And that's a problem. I always say, people often say to me, oh, you know, I'm not doing so much, so I don't need to eat so much nowadays. But, you know, you are still running an adult-sized body. You cannot afford to not provide it with what it needs to keep going. It would be like deciding your car's old, so you give it less and less fuel, less and less services, less and less, you know, brake fluid or whatever, and, you know, you're going to have consequences. So you have to keep the nutrients up. And as people get older, there are changes in physiology that can affect how well you absorb nutrients. So you need to make sure that you've got plenty of nutrition in what you eat. And if you are only eating in a you know, eight hour, 10 hour, whatever it happens to be window, it can be very difficult to get enough in in that period of time. I often say to people, just keep on saying, if your grandchild, granddaughter is going to say to you, oh, grandma, you should be on this diet because it's great, go, yeah, but I'm 70 and you're 20, 30, whatever it happens to be. Things change. Keep on saying, does this still apply to me? Great information, but hang on. I'm 83, does this apply? And it's that thinking and understanding that that nutrition is really important. And if people are trying to rebuild muscles, so say you have had a little setback and you're trying to rebuild, the evidence is definitely showing you must spread your protein intake out across the day. And you can't do that if you're eating in a small window. So you have to have put some protein into breakfast, have it at lunchtime, have it at dinner time, and sometimes a little bit later in the evening to push it into your muscles while you're sleeping. You just have to remember that protein becomes more important. 
I always say protein at the center of every meal and surround it with as many colors as you can get because the colors are the antioxidant foods and, and those colors provide antioxidants to protect your cells and the more different colors you can get, the more different antioxidants you end up with and therefore a benefit. You don't have to have lots. They can be from fruits, vegetables, nuts, seeds, grains, any sort of food you're eating contains colours, even the white ones, the cauliflower, the, the potato, they contain really powerful antioxidants that happen to not be purple or green or pink, you know. And so protein and colours, protein and colours. Good, simple, clear advice. We, we love that. What are good forms of protein to look at having across our breakfast, lunch and dinner meals? Yeah. Um, well, protein foods are, um, there's a lot of animal protein foods, meat, fish, chicken, eggs, um, all of those are good protein foods. Um, dairy foods also contain a lot of protein and the, the concentration of protein in dairy foods is based on how much water is in them. So dried milk or is very high in protein. Cheese is very is high in protein. Yogurt's a little bit less, but that's only because it's got more water in it. Milk's less again, but that's because it's got more water in it. Um, but they're very good protein foods. As well as that, you've got plant-based protein foods. So um, legumes dried peas and beans, baked beans, um, nuts and seeds are also very good sources of protein. And all the products that are made from um, legumes like soy products, tofu and the like. And there's also now some um, fungal-based um, products uh, that, that, that you will see occasionally, which are actually made from a thing somewhat like mushroom fibre that, that, that you can use as an alternative. And they're also protein sources. So protein food, they're the protein foods. And um, what I say to people is as far as breakfast, lunch and dinner, most of us are pretty good in the in our main meal of the day of having a protein of some sort. Most people are pretty good at dinner. Lunchtime, moderate. You know, if you have a sandwich, if you have a salad, say a cheese and salad sandwich, one slice of cheese is not going to be enough protein. You need to be looking at when you get older, you're going to have two slices or you're going to have meat and cheese. Breakfast is often the one we slip up on. Years ago, people would have eaten a mixed grill at breakfast or eggs and bacon before they went out, you know, to do the um, milking or whatever. And those are good protein foods, of course. Um, if you're not into that thing, you could go back to it. But if you're not into that, then you could... Um, then, you know, fruit and yogurt is a great breakfast, but it's not high enough in protein if you're older. So you need to find a way to boost that. You mentioned before what we some things we can do around preventing cognitive impairment, etc. Other advice around that, Nairi, in a preventative sense? There's a lot, of course, in what I write and what I talk about in this area. Um, I did mention the colours. You have to have good muscle and good activity to underpin your brain because it can't function without the rest of you um, so those things are pivotal we've got those already the other things that that your brain um, benefits from immensely is really good omega-3 fats which people will have heard about fish oil is one of them um, marine sources oily fish is one of the omega-3 fats and we hear a lot of talk about how important it is and many people might be taking fish oil supplements and in a slightly probably cynical part of me you know, there's a lot of benefit to companies that make fish oil supplements to have us all thinking we need to be taking more and more and more. Now, that's my cynic saying. The science shows that, yes, these are important and very important to the brain, but there are plant-based omega-3 fats which are also important. 
So they come from nuts and seeds, um, from very good quality oil. So, you know, um, olive oil, uh, any oil from nuts and seeds. And I say to people, buy the best quality oil you can afford. So, you know, I buy a good quality, that's expensive, extra virgin olive oil. But if you have a teaspoon of that, you either put it in your food or you just have a teaspoon if you like it. That's actually a really nice little benefit. It gives you good antioxidants and it throws in a bit of omega-3. And nuts, walnuts particularly, are very high in a great omega-3 fat that is really useful for your brain. Something else we hear a lot about is gut health. Your key advice around how we best manage or, or support our gut health and I guess part of that question too is what does that term really mean? Look, we are actually, there are billions and billions of bacteria that live in our um, digestive systems in our guts. Now, they do a lot of things. They Interestingly, they communicate with each other with the same neurotransmitters that the brain uses to um, communicate between cells and, and to transmit messages that run us. So, and there is an interplay between if you have levels of good brain chemicals, so if your brain is um, happy and settled, then your gut tends to be happy and settled. You don't, the chemicals that are made by the bacteria in the gut, the neurotransmitter chemicals that are made there, don't transfer directly to the brain, but they affect a nerve that runs between the brain and the gut. And it so if you stimulate it with the right chemicals, it settles that settles that nerve, settles the brain, and then the brain settles the gut. There's a really good combination. So that's very important. So what we need to do is keep them happy and keep them thriving and keep the good ones happy. And the way you keep the good ones happy is generally by eating the same food I've talked about, fresh, seasonal, local, nuts and seeds, grains, whole grains wherever possible, because all those fibrous things um, the bacteria really like. And when they're happy, they like things and things go well. So that's how you keep the bacteria happy, really, and then that helps in time. And, of course, antibiotics mess things up, but coming back and trying to get those those foods, the fibrous foods are called prebiotic because they feed the bacteria. Then there's things called probiotics, which you would know about. So they're fermented foods. They're bacteria that are already in the food, so yogurts and fermented products. And they're also helpful, but they're not the whole answer. You want to, it's it's the mixture of everything. So yogurt and kefir, if you like those, or lassi and all those sort of things, great if you like them. But if you don't like them, just eat fibrous foods and give yourself a balance. That that connection, as you say, between gut and, and brain and, and the rest of the body, really, it's, it's so important. Coming back to our everyday approach to food, to cooking, what's your tips, I guess, for us to, to ensure we continue to embrace food and, and the right sort of meals and, and have fun with that important part of our life. It's, it's not actually easy for everyone. I mean, I know a lot of um, people who get to, you know, later age and go, oh, I spent all these years cooking for everyone. I don't want to cook ever again for myself, for anyone. Um, and that's a challenge. Um, increasingly, fortunately, there are actually a reasonable range of pre-cooked meals are available now or there's organizations like Meals on Wheels and various people who will deliver meals and um, they're focusing more and more on fresh food they're not processed they're 
pre-cooked and they've got great packaging. So there are options for that. But in general for people, look, just mixing it up, um, thinking about the flavours you enjoy. I always say, you know, grow, even if you can't grow anything else, grow a few herbs at the back door. And there's a lot of flowers that are edible. Um, calendula, which many people would know, and, um, you know, some rose petals, whatever, various things, you know. All the colours that also impart colours into petals of those sort of things are also antioxidants. You don't have to have a lot, but throw in a few herbs, a few um, nuts and seeds onto things. And for some people that's a, that messes up with dentures and teeth and whatever, but if you can manage them or ground nuts, you know, those sort of things just, they're ways of throwing in something else to give colour and flavour. I do know a lot of people who have grown up um, um, eating a very simple diet and don't like to add those things. Well, you know, if you've grown up eating a simple diet of meat and veggies, whatever, keep on doing that. Um, it's It depends on what people like. You know, there's lots of talk about making it more flavorful, but, but, you know, I have a lot of clients who go, I don't want that. You know, even garlic is too spicy for some people, you know, spicy for some people. So, it, it, you have to tap into what you like and make the most of that. And what I try and do is try and say to people, right, well, if this is what you like, find a way to enhance that. Nairi, three quick questions to wrap up our discussion. Mm. Firstly, if you could talk to yourself 20 years ago, what's the one piece of advice you would give? I don't know. My thinking is always around my family. You know, like um, I've got a new grandchild recently, which is great. And I think possibly maybe the planning would have been unrelated to anything in far as food and nutrition. It would be planning around how I could be set up to be physically closer. But then you never know. They might disappear overseas or something before COVID <laughs> came along. Um, that's probably the thing that I would plan because that, that to me is my greatest joy in life, my children and now my grandchild. And in future, there'll be more, I presume. What is the greatest thing about getting older? Oh, grandchildren probably, I think. There's a number of things in it that are incredible and I'm sure that anyone has that has it. They're fun themselves, it's lovely, but also to see your children doing what you did is really um, fabulous. And, you know, there's partly a little bit of insight. They go, wow, I can't believe you went through this as well. <laughs> yeah, that's nice. It's only taken 30, 30 years to get that, act, yeah. that final recognition. <laughs> But, you know, watching them, that, so that's a bit funny, but, you know, just it's just a joy, really. Final question, one thing you wish for in your future? Um, just to be able to hang out with the children and um, um, still be able to do the things I like to do, um, uh, to travel about, maybe not necessarily huge distances, but just to be able to have that scope, to be able to physically um, do that. Um, like most people, stay as independent as possible. Nairi Hobbins, it's been wonderful to speak with you. Thanks for sharing your insights as well as your inspiration. Thank you, Marcus. It's been fun. Great. Some really interesting insights there from Nairi, particularly as to how our dietary needs evolve as we transition through different stages of our life. Her messages reinforce the absolute need to ensure we access the right information about what is right for our bodies, our minds, and indeed our overall well-being. This sort of right information will guide our new thinking on getting older and help ensure we are aging better. Booming can provide such helpful information through the Booming website, booming.net.au.